You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. In the iconic movie, The Princess Bride, a young woman named Buttercup has fallen in love with the farm boy who works on her small land holding. Wesley, who also loves her, decides that he needs to make his fortune before he can marry her. And so he sets off as crew on a seagoing ship. Sometime later, Buttercup gets word that the ship on which Wesley was serving had been overtaken by the dread pirate Roberts. Everyone knows that the dread pirate Roberts never takes prisoners, so she accepts the tragic reality that Wesley has died. All color and hope drain from her life. Yet she remains beautiful, and her hand is sought by the prince of the realm. Since the story is a fairy tale, even if you haven't seen it, you may have guessed that Wesley was in fact not dead. And when he returns and finds Buttercup engaged to the smarmy Prince Humperdinck, he is deeply dismayed at her unfaithfulness, at how readily she abandoned any hope for his return. Now, the viewer is tempted to cut Buttercup a bit of slack for moving on. After all, the dread pirate Roberts never takes prisoners. No living soul on Wesley's ship had ever returned home after that battle at sea. We can hardly fault Buttercup for assuming Wesley, like all the others, was dead. And, while she knew she would never know true love again, she took the pragmatic approach of moving on. We know that in fairy tales, true love prevails. But real life doesn't offer those same guarantees. No, in real life, it's all too easy to become jaded, to temper our hopes and dreams, to settle, to see our hopes for love, connection, belonging, and identity as naive and childish, and to trade them for something more safe, predictable, and normal to step onto the treadmill that the world offers, where identity comes from what we earn and what we spend it on, and where safety comes by insulating ourselves from others. I was thinking about that incident from the Princess Bride recently in the context of our current sermon series on belonging. The connection came because of the title image that Aaron created for the series, where belonging is split into B and then a vertical slash longing. Seeing it that way made me view it as an instruction to be longing, be longing for, seeking after, aching for connection and community, to keep on longing even when we've been disappointed by the absence of connection or hurt by connections that were unhelpful. Even then, it seemed to me the title was imploring us to keep looking for it. Don't give up. Don't compromise. Don't do what Buttercup did and settle for the smarmy Prince Humperdinck. Hannah is a character who you may remember in Hebrew scriptures as the mother of Samuel. Hannah longed for family, a family that would offer her connection, meaning, and identity. Here's a bit of her story. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah. He had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. 
Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penina and each of her children, and because he loved Hannah, he would give her a choice portion, because the Lord had given her no children. So Penina would taunt Hannah and make fun of her, because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Penina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? Poor Hannah. Not only is she suffering the pain and shame of infertility, she has to deal with the unhelpful people around her. Her husband seems to be about as sensitive as a brick and makes it all about himself. Why ever are you crying? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And then there's Penina, the rival wife. She is constantly mocking and deriding poor Hannah. I find myself wondering if what really bugged Penina was Hannah's persistent faith. If Hannah had given up on praying for a son and settled into a role as a kind of maiden aunt in the household, Penina might have left her alone. But Hannah doesn't give in to despair. She doesn't settle for being a sort of stepmom to Penina's many kids. She trusts that God will give her a son, so she continues to wait and to pray. And finally, her prayers are answered. She bears a son, Samuel, who goes on to be an important prophet and judge in Israel. I want to be clear about why I'm sharing that story. I am not sharing it because I think that when we get a notion in our heads about what we want, we should pray and pray until we either get it or die still praying for it. We may rightly be confident that God wants to place us in an environment where we can love and be loved. But while we may be right about that goal, we may be quite wrong about the means, the how God wants to do that. I once heard the story about a girl who was smitten with a guy in her church named John and prayed and prayed that God would bring them together. Then, one day in her daily devotions, she hits the verse in the first chapter of the fourth gospel. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. She was sure God was answering her prayer. Of course, it seems silly now, but our emotions can cloud our judgment in situations like that. She was right to long for connection. Where she got into trouble was when she insisted the connection had to be marriage and the marriage had to be to John. We may recognize our need for belonging, for community, for connectedness, and quickly jump to a concrete picture of of what that would look like. We're certainly on the right track when we long for connection, but it may look different from what we had expected, even for Hannah. The year before Samuel was born, when the family made their pilgrimage to the tabernacle at Shiloh, she was given assurance that she would have a son, but also that she was expected to devote him to the Lord's service from a very young age. She would be free of Penina's mocking, but she would not get to watch her son growing up. Not perhaps exactly what it was that she had been wanting. We may be expecting the nuclear family behind the white picket fence, but God may be placing us instead in a chosen family or in a faith community that becomes family. 
The point is not about insisting on and getting the spouse, two kids, and a dog. The point is about continuing to be open to and longing for the points of connection that God is making available to us. For the many of us who were fortunate enough to grow up in reasonably functional homes, that first place of connection, belonging, and identity was our family. Even in our earliest years, we were forming both connection and the capacity for connection. Research has shown, for instance, that something as simple as a mom gazing into the eyes of her young baby can foster the development of neural connections in the brain that support resiliency and the capacity for close relationships. In contrast, young children who don't get that kind of maternal contact and are raised in stressful environments don't form those same brain connections. And as they age, they are at much higher risk for social isolation and substance abuse. Long before the neuroscience had been documented, though, the Bible repeatedly stressed the importance of healthy families as places of safety, provision, intimacy, and learning. Learning both by instruction and by example how to relate to other people and how to connect with God. In our families of origin, we had the opportunity to learn that relationships can survive hurts and disappointments, and we gained the skills that we need to work through challenges of that sort. We had identity. In my family, we were the Huxes, related to but different than the Millers who lived next door. And home was a safe haven from the challenges and hurts dished out by the wider world. Talking about that kind of healthy nuclear family these days can sound naive, like a nostalgic look back to television programs from the 60s. Lovely as it is to remember or even to imagine those kinds of healthy homes, there are a couple of cautions I want to raise. The first is a problem that actually is more likely to occur in a very close-knit family, a family where the sense of identity and belonging are so strong that everyone else is an outsider, is other. Within the family unit, each person may be encouraged to express their uniqueness, but when exposed to outsiders, and especially if threatened by others, they close ranks and become a unit, us against them complete and contained within themselves with no need to connect or engage, like billiard balls on a pool table, bumping up against other families and groups from time to time, but never intersecting or mingling with the other. And of course, this phenomenon can happen at other levels of society, at a denominational level in churches. We like who we are, and we have no need to engage with those Catholics or Calvinists, and we certainly wouldn't want to go on vacation with an Eastern Orthodox family or on a country level. I know there's been terrible flooding in Pakistan, but that's them over there. It doesn't really impact me. Martin Luther King, in his teaching and advocacy, wasn't content with the billiard ball model, not content with simple, peaceful coexistence where the blacks no longer needed to fear discrimination and violence, but lived parallel lives separate from whites. He longed to see more than that. King called for the creation of a beloved community, not two separate circles that occasionally connected or intersected, but rather a single community based on our shared humanity. 
for those who feel safe and content within a happy, happy family or welcoming community. King would nudge us into a larger and more inclusive circle. Of course, the other problem with the ideal of the healthy and happy family circle is that it seems increasingly rare. Many of you will have grown up in families where you learned more about how to keep your head down and avoid rejection or punishment than how to lean into connection. And that experience is likely to have left you guarded and cynical about notions of connection, belonging, and intimacy. You're not alone. Did you know that Jesus' family at one point decided he had lost his mind and tried to stage an intervention on him? Jesus was doing the work his heavenly father had called him to, and that caused his earthly family to label him as out of touch with reality. Here's how Mark records the encounter in his biography of Jesus. Jesus has just been told that his family are outside trying to rescue him, and he responds, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' human family, at least at this point in his ministry, does not understand him. They think he is embarrassing them. They want to rescue him by shutting down his ministry. Jesus isn't swayed by their pressure, but he also doesn't give up on looking for meaningful human connection. He doesn't say, well, I guess it's just you and me, God, and operate as a lone ranger. He acknowledges another larger family that he's part of, the family of faithful followers of God. I started out this morning talking about the fairy tale heroine Buttercup, who stopped longing for the return of her true love, Wesley, and settled for lackluster Prince Humperdinck. Two and a half years into COVID, we may have more sympathy with her than we would have in the past. We may long for connection, for family, for community, for belonging, but it's all been so difficult, so confusing, so fraught. Accommodating those who have adopted different approaches to masks and vaccination and who carry different levels of risk for COVID, navigating public spaces with caution and doing it all under a blanket of fear or at least unease. Zoom may have offered far more contact with others than folks back in the 1919 flu pandemic could have dreamed of, but it's still only a pale shadow of the reality of laughter and tears around a small table and a shared meal. Given all of that, we may be tempted to retreat from connection, to settle for solitude, to see healthy community as a kind of unrealistic fairy tale. And these days, it's so easy to check out. With video streaming services, we can retreat into our dens and choose from a host of characters who we can live our lives through vicariously, safely, with no risk. And once we've filled our spare hours with those sorts of solo activities, we may find that our energy is sapped and we just don't feel like getting together with others. We may feel that our social skills have gotten rusty in the last couple of years. I know that when I started cautiously getting together with people in an outdoor setting last summer, I found back-and-forth conversation awkward. I found myself talking in paragraphs. Apparently, that's how I talk to myself in my own head. I get that it's hard, but I just can't escape the notion that Jesus is calling us to belong. To belong to one another and to belong to his kingdom. Whether we're content in a safe family and need to be nudged into a broader circle, or whether past relationships have burned us and we hesitate to take the risks of connection. 
we need to belong. And perhaps for us, the first step in that is to be 